I saw a little thing on uh, social media a few weeks ago. There was a few guys debating whether you should have a Sunday evening service or not. And one guy gave this big, long series of reasons why you shouldn't do it in our culture. And another guy, a Ph.D. pastor, just wrote back, you're dumb. And that, <laughs> okay, well, if the argument uh, is easily won that way. But I'm thankful for our Sunday evening service. I, I love this gathering. It is a, a time to learn at a, at a little bit uh, maybe different depth and, and to understand the word of the Lord. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1, and we'll use that just as our launching point this evening as we now venture into the Pentateuch. Series 3, we're calling it. Series 1, we did five messages to introduce the Pentateuch. Series 2, we went through Genesis, the book of the beginnings of the kingdom. And so it's not too late. If you haven't heard all those messages, there's only 16 of them. You can get caught up so that you can be part of the whole Pentateuch. And now we'll look at Series 3. Exodus, the book of the beginning of Israel. I heard a Christian speaker recently who made an attempt, and I think his heart was right, but he made an attempt to explain how faithful God was to him in the midst of a time of suffering that he endured. But it broke my heart because he literally had no words. He had no theology of any kind to back up his belief that God was faithful to him, When he had undergone a major trial, he used phrases like, God is there, God was amazing, God never gave up, God was ready for me to fall into his arms. And when he was speaking to this live audience, he used a lot of phrases like, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Do you get me? Do you get what I'm talking about? Because he was desperately hoping they would fill in the blanks for what he didn't even know what to say. He had no content. His description of God was generally that of God giving him an emotional boost when he was down, basically reducing God to a divine shoulder to cry on. In five solid minutes of trying desperately to explain God's faithfulness, he basically said nothing. And you could tell that he really was trying to say something, he just didn't have the words. He wanted to convey some truth about God's sustaining power, but he just didn't have the content to back up his belief. And then I understood why, because he spoke about his view of the Bible. Essentially, he had an empty explanation of God because he admitted he had ignored the Bible during all of his professed Christian life. And all of a sudden, when suffering struck him, now the Bible began to take on meaning. And I thought, well, we're getting somewhere. But all he did was quote a couple of verses that were really like spiritual caffeine to just get him through the day. The Bible verses became mantras. They became things to repeat over and over again to give instant emotional relief instead of deep truths rooted in a context of the story of God's redemptive plan. They just became little sayings. It became that the Bible was reduced to nothing more than chicken soup for the soul. That's all it was. And it was so sad to me because you, I could sense hearing him that he really wanted to convey how faithful God was. He just didn't have words. Because by grasping the, the broader and the more comprehensive truths about God in Scripture, his magnificence and his glory and the things that just overwhelm you, his wisdom, his might, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy, his wrath, perfection after perfection after perfection, all in the context of a story. 
now you begin to get somewhere. And so to know and to understand at some level the God who made and sustains all things, you have to understand the story that's presented in Scripture. And that's what we started doing when we introduced the Pentateuch. Because if you understand the Pentateuch, you understand the Bible. Because it is the microcosm of the Bible in many ways. And so we started with a broad sweep of Genesis and just 11 messages. And what we found was that God's word began and it will end with the concept of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. That is the theme of scripture. That God has glorified himself in creation and the pinnacle of his creation is mankind made in his image. Salvation of man is not the chief end of God. Salvation of man is a means to the chief end of God, which is to glorify himself in a kingdom. In other words, we would say we are doxological in our focus. That all things point to the glory of God in the kingdom that he would set up. Mankind was given a central directive, as we called it. In Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the point of the Bible right there. Mankind was to be the vice regent of God on earth to rule on his behalf, to rule alongside him. But of course, we don't get very far before sin enters into the mix. And because of sin, that plan will be brought about through redemption, through the recovering of the perfect kingdom of God. God's ultimate plan was, it continues to be, and it always will be, to have a world full of distinct nations. We see nations all the way back in Genesis 2, and we see nations all the way in Revelation 22, all through Scripture, a world full of distinct nations which glorify and honor Him for all eternity. And the nations would learn the pathway back to God through one specific nation, one representative nation, one lead nation. And this lead nation would now be the bridge from sinful mankind over to holy God. And so we saw in Genesis that God called Abram and promised to make from his body that one specific nation. And that through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed This blessing would come in the form of the promised Savior of Genesis 3.15, who would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe. And from Genesis 12 onward, really, as we march through the rest of Genesis, the the focus of the story in the Pentateuch becomes much more uh, sharpened to look at the formation of Israel as a nation. Until at last, the story ends at the end of Genesis with Jacob's family moving to Egypt under the watchful care of Joseph and a friendly Pharaoh, all in accordance with God's word to Abram that his descendants would be in a foreign nation 400 years before God rescued them. And so from a human vantage point, it looks like trouble. It looks like dark days are coming. In fact, the last verse in Genesis says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What a terrible ending to a book. So it seems dark, but this is the dark background against which God will paint the masterpiece of forming his chosen nation. 
And Exodus just picks up where Genesis left off. Now our sights are turned to this crisis point when God redeems his people. He saves them and forms them officially into his promised nation. So let's see how it begins. Follow along with me. Exodus 1, we'll look at the first eight verses briefly. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. See also the Abrahamic covenant. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Insert bum, bum, bum. Because now is when the, when the drama really begins. The stage has been set for the drama of the rescue of Israel. This Pharaoh would enslave Israel, putting Israel in a position of helplessness such that only their God can save them. So tonight, before we venture out into the Red Sea waters, so to speak, of the book of Exodus, let's get our bearings. So I want to talk to you tonight about how to understand the book of Exodus, kind of how to, how to be thinking. Uh, what we'll do is just examine five major themes in the book. I narrowed it down from about 20, but I thought we could do five. And these will just serve as kind of points on the horizon for us to keep our bearings as we go through Exodus. Because as you saw in Genesis, once we get started, we're going 100 miles an hour through the book and, and we'll, we'll go fairly quickly. So this will give you some, some points on the horizon, some anchor points. We'll apply some of these themes as we go along also because the book of Exodus is, is just eminently applicable to us as Christians today. So let's just walk through these five major themes. The first theme we'll call the sovereign election of God. The sovereign election of God. Sometimes those who are not Calvinists will say, you guys see election everywhere. And it's true, only because it is everywhere. And we're, we see it certainly in Exodus. Now we go back to Genesis for a moment. And Genesis highlights the sovereign election of an individual. The sovereign choice of an individual by God. And that is Abram. Abram didn't apply for the job. He didn't seek out this special treatment by God. He just received it. No reason is given. It's just that God chose Abram. God made a covenant with Abram, and this included promises of a nation, promises of land, promises of blessing, and promises of a seed. And that seed is both fulfilled in the massive numbers of people that would come from his body and the singular seed who would be the Savior, Jesus Christ. But now Exodus advances the story in that while Genesis chose a, an elect man in Exodus, we see a chosen people, and this people now becomes a chosen nation. And so there's a progression here, and this chosen nation was much more than just a large biological family sharing the same ethnicity. They would be charged with being a witness of Yahweh, being a witness of the one true living God to the rest of the world. So how do we know that God chose Israel? How do we understand this? How do we know that God set his love on her in particular? Well, Exodus records the culmination of the choice of God by the deliverance of Israel. By the deliverance of Israel. In fact, we could put together a very simple order of events concerning God's clear choice of this nation. Three, three aspects, three order of events here. First, election. 
election, God promised Abram all the way back in Genesis 12 that a nation would come from his body. Now we see in Exodus 1, here she is. Here is the nation. The second in the order of events we would call formation. This is very simply the physical formation of the nation. In Egypt, God would physically raise up this nation until they were so many that mighty Egypt would be afraid of them. Look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This is the greatest power on earth saying that at that moment. So you have election. Second, you have formation, just the actual formation of of the people. And then third, salvation. Salvation, that God would extricate his people from slavery and he would do so in a way that left absolutely no doubt as to who God is and Israel's identity as God's chosen, God's elect nation. I've done a little bit of reading on the history of Egypt, and it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's phenomenal. I don't think there's ever been an empire like it since. Egypt is considered by many the greatest empire, human empire that's ever arisen. But in the sovereign plan of God, all Egypt was was an incubator. Egypt was an incubator for the nation of Israel, and by the way, would be the means by which God would glorify himself in Egypt's defeat at the short-lived Battle of the Red Sea. Battle of the Red Sea is Yahweh versus Pharaoh and his grand army. It was a really short battle. And this amazing and miraculous deliverance in which God displayed his might and his omnipotence through first the ten plagues, then through the Red Sea. This wasn't just to make Israel's life easier. It was to help them better understand how chosen they were. How incomparable God is toward them. God's never done anything like this for anybody else on earth. Now, if you recall from our introductory messages to the Pentateuch, Israel lived in a world in which everyone was polytheistic. The the idea of worshiping just one God was utterly foreign. That that was was an odd idea. Gods were everywhere in the minds of the ancient Near Eastern nations. But by effecting this clear victory over all the so-called gods of Egypt... Israel was shown the nature of the true and powerful one singular God. In fact, I want to show you this. Turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, 40 years after the exodus from Egypt, Moses used the exodus, and we'll go all the way to verse 32. Moses used the exodus as proof of the uniqueness, the singularity, the the holiness, and the all-powerful nature of Yahweh of their God, that the Exodus is proof of who God is and proof of how chosen Israel is. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown... That's a key phrase. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. 
Out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he lets you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Dr. Michael Grisani wrote, quote, By performing the plagues, parting the waters of the Red Sea, and providing for all their physical needs as they journeyed to Mount Sinai, God revealed his character to them and made these things divine tools to transform them from a people to a nation of his own choosing. This is a big deal. This is not just a, a, a random act by God. Now, God's election of Israel is proven, it's demonstrated by the Exodus. I think this is very instructive to us. And, and, and there's, I think, three little lessons we could take from this. First lesson we'll call the ridiculousness of free will. The ridiculousness of free will. If we're to believe that salvation in Christ is purely of the free will decision of man, if you are to believe or I'm to believe that I made a completely independent intellectual decision to come to faith in Christ, then if you're going to be intellectually consistent, you must also say that of their own free will, Israel decided that God would perform ten plagues and decided that he would part the Red Sea to save them. You must be consistent. But free will is ridiculous. Why have you been elected? Because God decided. And that must be good enough. If somebody says that's not good enough for me, that's good enough for the Bible. It's good enough for God. The ridiculousness of free will. Here's another lesson, the pattern of redemption. And you've already seen this, the pattern of redemption. For Israel, the pattern of redemption was election, formation, salvation. Is that the pattern for us? That's precisely the pattern of spiritual redemption. Election in eternity past. Ephesians 1, formation, God formed you in the womb, Psalm 139, and salvation, you were born again of the Spirit of God according to the plan of God, John 3. And so God's pattern of saving his people is always the same, whether you're talking about the, the physical deliverance of Israel or you're talking about the spiritual deliverance of those in the church. And then the third lesson, we might call the defeat of false gods. The defeat of false gods, the election of Israel in Exodus, is pointedly all about the glory of God and about taking glory away from man, taking glory away from so-called other gods. Exodus 14.4, God said, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. That was, that was God's point. The doctrine of election of the saints and salvation in Christ is equally all about the glory of God. The doctrine of election is meant to take glory away from man and take glory away from false gods. 
false gods like the God of intellectual understanding, the God of so-called free will, the God of false salvation experiences with names like rededicating my life to Christ and recommitting my name to Christ, my, my life to Christ. Those are false salvation experiences. The God of legalism, trying to earn God's favor by good deeds. The God of emotionalism, the God of the prosperity gospel. All these gods, true biblical salvation rooted in election is meant to take glory from those false gods and give glory solely to God. The sovereign election of God. That's our first theme in in Exodus. Second theme, the servant nation of God. The servant nation of God. Turn back with me now to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. The servant nation of God. After God rescued the people of Israel, he brought them to Mount Sinai. Now to officially form them into the nation of Israel. And God has definite intentions for this nation. There's a purpose. This wasn't just a random act where God got up one morning and said, I think I'll make a nation today. There's a purpose behind this. But before he reveals his covenant requirements, before he reveals his law to them, God wanted them to understand their relationship to him, why he's entering into covenant with them. And here we have the the answer to that question, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, if the Ten Commandments, which are coming up here in chapter 20, could be considered the constitution of Israel, this is the preamble. This is the reasoning behind the covenant relationship God is forming with Israel. And we should note, by the way, this is a love relationship. This isn't just a divine business deal. It is a love relationship. Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Um, Actually, one There's just one guy. Anybody can choose the strongest. God chose the weakest. And so it was a love relationship. But let's look at that preamble for a moment. There's three basic components to it, which help us understand that they're to be a servant nation. The first component focuses on God. Let me read verse 4 the way it's meant to be read. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and and brought you to myself. God is saying that he is exclusively responsible for Israel's rescue and for getting them through every obstacle that they faced um, to this point. And that point cannot be understated. It, It really can't. Because God placed himself now in a position to have the credibility to make demands of Israel, to require covenant loyalty on their part. Why? Because he saved them. He absolutely rescued them. So the first component focuses on God, God's character. The second component focuses on covenant loyalty. On covenant loyalty, God is giving them a preview of the covenant that he's about to make with Israel. And he gives an if-then statement that if they will obey Yahweh and keep the covenant he's about to make with him, then they will receive blessing and fulfill the mission that he's given them. 
And that's our, our third component. The last part of verse 5 and then all of verse 6 focuses on that third component, mission and blessing. Mission and blessing. A, a nation characterized by this covenant loyalty will be treasured. She'll be cherished. She'll be a loved possession of God. And their mission is that they are to be a kingdom of priests, they are to be a holy nation. Why? To represent God to the nations. That's why Israel exists. That's their whole purpose. And so the preamble focuses on the character of God, what covenant loyalty looks like, and then mission and blessing. And so now, having been commissioned in the preamble, having been given the preview of the purpose of the coming law, God will reveal his requirements in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and in the Book of the Covenant, which I'll explain in a moment. The Ten Commandments and the detailed laws which would follow, not only in Exodus, but also in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy as well, these would be the means by which they would live out God's intentions for them, the means by which they would, they would show their joyful and their exuberant and their passionate loyalty to God. In other words, they weren't to just express love verbally. They were to express it in actions. And this would make them completely distinct in the world, totally different than any other nation. The laws, for example, concerning justice and society were completely different than nations around them. And it was meant to create a peaceful and a loving society like none other on earth, where debts are forgiven, where family takes care of one another. You understand that in the 3,500 years or so since the Exodus, no society has ever figured out how to socially take care of its people since this time, and yet the law of the Lord does. The law of the Lord does. It, it takes care of everything. It takes care of homelessness. It takes care of poverty. Poverty. It takes care of indebtedness. It takes care of every social ill. The sacrificial system and, and worship would be so the nations could see the potential that exists to enjoy a real and living relationship with the one true God and to see the hope of resolving humanity's sin problem, which now separates us from God. So we should be really clear here, though. In this preamble, God is not freeing Israel. He's not freeing them as much as he's simply transferring their allegiance He's transferring their allegiance from a wicked, hateful master to a righteous, loving master. They were to go from being slaves of Egypt to being slaves of God. In serving Egypt, they received harsh treatment and no love. In serving God, they would receive blessing and protection and intimate love with their God. Now, I know we still are uncomfortable with slave terminology, but it's helpful to remember that our conception of, of slavery is very different than the Bible's in, in a lot of ways. But there is one resemblance. A slave is owned. A slave is owned, and Israel's choice was either be owned by Egypt or be owned by God. Those are your two options. And at the end of verse 5, God tells Israel, you shall be my treasured possession and what's his reasoning? All the earth is mine. It's all mine anyway. Now, this is preparing the reader now for the declaration of God that he would make later on in Leviticus when he's talking about the year of Jubilee. But listen to when he's requiring different things, redemption and restoration and so forth. But listen to his reasons. This is all the way in Leviticus 25. You don't have to turn there, but this tells you how God viewed Israel. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. The Hebrew word is slaves. 
They are my servants, same word, slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Why is the rescue of Israel so important? Because it made them indebted to him. And nobody could ever look back and say, you know, I think we kind of did that on our, on our own. I, I don't think that was God. Really? You did the whole Red Sea thing? No, it, it was God. And by the way, God's calling of Israel to be his servant nation, this isn't oppression of any kind. This isn't, we, we don't look down on this. We don't judge God. He owns everything, including us. It, it's a privilege and it's an honor with absolutely mind-blowing blessings that go with covenant loyalty. I think the lesson for us here is very obvious. Your New Testament mind is probably already running ahead. Every human being is owned. Every human being is a slave. We have two options of masters. You can be a slave of sin with the attendant curses, or you can be a slave of God with the attendant blessings. Those are our options. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 6. He said, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you're a slave of sin, you're free to not be righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time when the things of which you were now ashamed... For the end of those things is death. That yes, you can do whatever you want, but it's going to cost you your soul. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. By the way, what was the complaint of some of the Israelites when being a servant of God became hard? And became difficult. Numbers 14.4. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? For the professing Christian. The temptation when faith in Christ requires obeying him. Requires being loyal. Requires being sanctified. Requires doing the hard thing. Requires stopping doing those things that you want to keep doing. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to persevere in the faith. Hebrews 6.11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Because that's what a faithful slave does. First theme, the sovereign election of God. Second theme, the servant nation of God. Third theme we could identify in Exodus we'll call the supreme law of God. The supreme law of God. The Ten Commandments, given in Exodus 20 and then reiterated in Deuteronomy 5, this is the core, this is the heart, this is the middle of what God would require of his servant nation. And just to summarize them, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make an image or bow down to images, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. This means to not misuse his name in any way, including pretending to, to have his name and yet act like you don't. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. This is the sign, sort of the mascot, so to speak, of this covenant. Honor your father and mother. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. These weren't random commandments. These were very practical commandments meant to 
address how Israel would live in the land. They're central to the Mosaic Covenant. God's covenant with Israel is mediated through Moses. And we cannot and should not separate the Ten Commandments from their context. Every commandment addresses really vital foundational issues for Israel, how they were to live in the land that God was about to give them. The first four commandments deal with Israel's relationship with God. The last six deal with Israel's relationship with one another. So you have four vertical and six horizontal commandments. Now, the reason the Ten Commandments shouldn't be separated out, shouldn't be extricated from their context is because they're anchored to a covenant relationship. They're anchored to a contract, so to speak. Let me put it to you this way. Somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, you owe me $100. And you say, really? Why is that? Well, because paragraph 7 of this contract says so. And you look at the contract and you turn it around and you say, I never signed this and I don't know who you are. I'm not obligated to that contract. And so we always have to consider the covenant aspect of the Ten Commandments first as a a contract or a treaty made from God to Israel. They must remain in that context. This was specifically between God and Israel for a set period of time until the coming of the new covenant in Christ. And by the way, Israel did sign the contract. We have their signature. Look with me at Exodus 19 verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. That's the first time you see another republic right there. It has been reported. They said yes. They signed on the dotted line. Now, the law served multiple purposes, but I want to just highlight two very briefly. First of all, It arranged all of your life and conduct. It arranged all of your life and conduct. The law gave tangible ways to live a life of holiness and righteousness before the Lord. Psalm 119 says 176 times that the law is good and that it's upright and that it's righteous. This would have been a glorious society to live in. I'm always sad when uninformed Christians say that the law was bad. The Bible never says that. It just says that the new covenant is better. But the law was good. The Bible says that all over the place. The Lord Jesus said the law was good. And so it arranged all of your life and conduct. You literally knew what you were supposed to do to please God every moment of every day. You understood how to deal with every relationship. Husbands knew how to deal with wives. Wives knew how to deal with husbands. You knew how to raise your families. You knew how to manage your money. You knew how to deal with land. You knew how to deal with animals. You knew how to deal with your neighbors. You knew how to deal with your God. Everything in society was outlined for you. It was a a beautiful idea. It arranged your life. But the second purpose is that it demonstrated God's character to the surrounding nations. It demonstrated his character to their neighbors. Israel did pretty much everything differently than the pagan nations around them. And Moses reiterated this reason in Deuteronomy 26. Beginning in verse 16, he said, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice 
And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. Here it comes. And that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. In other words, the keeping of the law brings fame to Israel. Israel points to God and says, this is the law of our God. We saw this in microcosm in the Old Testament during the reign of Solomon when kings and queens, most famously the queen of Sheba, would come to Israel and marvel at this society that is led by a wise king, by laws that are straight from heaven. And what was happening in Israel during that short little microcosm of what God intended for all of his kingdom, blessing and honor and and wealth and dominion, The keeping of the law brought fame to God. And we should note this. This is really important. The rest of the law of God simply fleshed out and detailed how the Ten Commandments were to be applied. The other 600 plus laws in the the law of Moses, they all relate to at least one of the Ten Commandments. Every single one of them. They're, They're fleshed out what the Ten Commandments say. They're fleshing that out. The rest of the legislation of God... These weren't somehow random rules that God came up with with no connection to the Ten Commandments. They're detailed applications of how God's character and his holiness worked itself out in your daily life. Whether we know, quoted in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that we are to be holy. And what's the reason? Because God is holy. Our lives are to be a mirror of the character of God. And so these laws were the means by which a faithful Israelite would show his love and his loyalty to God. When you love someone, what do you desperately desire to do? You you desire to give an expression of that love. And the law of God is the expression of the love of a faithful Israelite. Some laws were vertical concerning their love for God. Other laws were horizontal concerning their love for one another. Or to put it as Jesus did in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's vertical. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's horizontal. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Remember how the theme of Genesis was heavy on the establishment of God's kingdom on earth? Well, the the law of Moses was meant to give a a living, a three-dimensional, a tangible demonstration of what God's kingdom on earth could look like, what what it would look like. And this is worth reading. If we take a moment, turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 is just a, a thrilling chapter in our Bible. Moses is reiterating for the second generation of Israelites, what covenant loyalty looks like in everyday life. And let's just read the first 14 verses and, and, and you take stock in your own heart if this is a life that you would like. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. 
Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb. And in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground. Within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. What a life! Basically, that everything you touch is blessed. If we put it in modern day terms, this is God saying, invest a hundred bucks in the stock market, I'll give you a thousand. Plant one seed, I'll give you a field of fruit. Everything you do will be blessed. It'll be fruitful. That's the, the, and what does he say over and over again? If you obey the law, it gave the opportunity to demonstrate in a small microcosm what God's kingdom on earth could look like. By the way, if you compile everything you can find in the Bible about the final state of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, you would find that the end times, the final kingdom state is very similar to this. This is the microcosm of what's coming for every believer. Now, how do we apply this to us? We're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ, as expressed in the New Covenant, as expressed in the New Testament. The two purposes of the law of Moses, though, also serve to our obedience in Christ as, as New Covenant believers. First of all, the law of Christ arranges all of our life and conduct, doesn't it? It gives you a tangible way to express your loyalty and your love to the Lord. And there are so many benefits to you. Can I just give you a few benefits of obeying the Lord I'll just list five. I came up with a few more, but I'll just do five. You'll enjoy the same loving guidance as Israel. Obedience lets you enjoy that same loving guidance as Israel. The, the Ten Commandments are the constitution of Israel belonging in the Old Covenant. But we do see nine out of ten of the commandments applied now to the New Covenant. And while there's no longer a Sabbath law because that was, that was the sign of the Old Covenant, there's certainly a Sabbath principle at work. Hebrews chapter 4 describes our salvation as entering into the Sabbath rest of God. And so we have the same loving guidance as Israel. There's another benefit. God ordained family relationships. God ordained family relationships. A husband who submits to his wife or doesn't cultivate love for her can't enjoy the covenant benefits of obedience a wife who's disrespectful and backbiting to her husband can't enjoy the covenant benefits of obedience. Parents who refuse to discipline and correct their children can't enjoy the covenant benefits of a peaceful family. 
you ask a family that's trying to obey the Lord, why does your family seem so peaceful? Well, because we're trying to obey the Lord. There's a third benefit. You avoid unnecessary discipline. You avoid unnecessary discipline from the Lord. James chapter 5 outlines the example of an unrepentant believer who has become sick. And in repentance, God restores him to health because that particular illness was related to disobedience. 1 Corinthians 11 outlines God physically disciplining believers in the church. And yes, God does discipline all believers. Hebrews 12 tells us this. But some of it could be avoided through obedience. Some of it is self-inflicted. So fourth benefit, you enjoy the benefit of joyful relationships. Joyful relationships. The New Testament is, is chock full of how to do relationships with the, with the body of Christ. When you have relationships that are heavy on patience and forgiveness and light on criticism and harshness because you take Ephesians 4 seriously, you enjoy that benefit. You enjoy the benefit that if you'll truly take the Lord's admonition to forgive to heart, you would never go to sleep at night with your thoughts running and your thoughts racing about that stupid person that you don't like right now. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have that because obedience brings covenant peace. One more, you would enjoy the benefit of loving the church, loving your local church, the believer who takes the time to grasp the roles of the sheep and the shepherds and the mission and the goals of the church will grow in love for the church as the local body is obedient to the head. And so the law of Christ arranges our life and conduct. It's, it's glorious. It's wonderful. But not only does the law of Christ under the new covenant arrange our life and conduct, your obedience demonstrates God's character to the world. Your obedience demonstrates God's character to the world. Just as the keeping of the law of Moses brought fame to God, so also our obedience to the precepts of Christ bring fame and glory and honor to God. Because our humble obedience says, this is what God can do for you if you will submit your wretched life to him. He can transform it. Now, it is wrong to say you should come to faith in God so that he can give you all kinds of blessings. But it is equally wrong to say that salvation in Christ doesn't come with attendant blessings. Yes, there's suffering, but there's, there's great, great blessing as well. First theme, the sovereign election of God, the servant nation of God, the supreme law of God. Let's consider a fourth theme, the sacred book of the covenant of God. The sacred book of the covenant of God. The Ten Commandments were the general stipulations of the law of God. By using the Ten Commandments alone, in fact, you could make your way to really every other principle in the law. But the Book of the Covenant gave a specific set of stipulations. Now, this is based on the expression found in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. There's another signature on page 4 there, apparently. The Book of the Covenant is, is really, we might call it, an expanded commentary on how to apply the Ten Commandments. Now, where is the Book of the Covenant? Well, different scholars pick different starting and ending points to the Book of the Covenant, but we're pretty close to say that the heart of the Book of the Covenant is found in Exodus 21, verse 1, through Exodus 23, 19. 
Some might say that the section before and after is the conclusion or the introduction and the conclusion. Others just include it. It doesn't make any difference. We'll just include all that might be in the Book of the Covenant for the sake of making the point that the Book of the Covenant elucidates and illuminates and expands on the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not going to read every section completely, but you might follow along. I just want to highlight some mountaintops here. Beginning in chapter 20, verse 22, we could call this the topic of worship. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, we begin to see how the Lord would... um, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter there. I'll get back to it. We have the sanctity of worship um, when we see that he expresses... You are not to make gods of gold, gods of silver, gods of of anything visible. An altar was to be hewn of stones, or can't be made of hewn stones, rather, because that would profane the altar. And we see an interesting little thing here, if I could ever find it, that you were supposed to approach the altar of God. There's no other way to put this. Don't come without your underwear on. That you were not to show your nakedness. Because it was, it was holy to the Lord. It was to be um, righteous when you worshipped. Then you have a section of neighborliness. Neighborliness. You have uh, the idea here of specific laws regarding the humane treatment of slaves. You have marital rights and privileges. You have, uh, by the way, more than any other society on earth, you have the defense of women. You have the defense of the honor of women. I found out my problem. I was in Deuteronomy. Now I'm back in Exodus. Exodus 20, 22 through 26, talks about worship. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 1, talks about neighborliness. How do you treat one another? Slaves, women, marriage. How do you deal with accidental death? How do you deal with willful murder? How do you deal with with, uh, unwillful murder? How do you deal with those things? It, it kept your neighborhood safe. Even, even details like how do you deal with fights and injuries? How do you deal with dangerous animals? All these things that created a, a safe and neighborly society. Chapter 21, beginning of verse 33, deals with the topic of restitution. It deals with restitution in, in cases of theft, in cases of arson, personal injury, borrowed property, any, any time where restitution might be made necessary. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, deals with social justice. It deals with the issue of social justice in the godliest sense of that phrase, not in the pagan liberal sense that's so twisted today. Social justice in the biblical context spoke of sexual morality and responsibility and honoring marriage, honoring the marriage bed. It told you how to treat a sojourner, a traveler through the country. It taught you that if you lend money to do so compassionately and to not charge interest. It taught you not to curse and revile any of the leadership. It taught you to not delay giving to the Lord when you have the means. It it taught you to beware of gossip and slander. It taught you to be kind and not take advantage of the poor so that socially as a society they were to take care of one another. And then beginning in chapter 23, verse 10 through verse 19, you have the Sabbath and festival calendar the Sabbath and festival calendar. And just to summarize it, you lived your life around the Sabbaths and the feasts of the Lord, and this was to separate them from their pagan neighbors. 
And this is why you have in this section this very odd command. Look with me at chapter 23, verse 19. At the very end of verse 19, it's just kind of stuck in here. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What is that there for? There have been whole articles written about that. It's not that complicated. That was a Canaanite fertility ritual. And God is saying, don't do that. You're not like them. You're not a part of them anymore. And so in the book of the covenant, you have the Ten Commandments fleshed out in everyday life terms. And in fact, I'm going to take an entire message. I think the seventh message in this series, we're going to walk through the book of the covenant in detail because it it, it is so instructive for us on how to take care of one another, how to live in this world in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, the idea of general stipulations and specific stipulations, this is very useful to us because you actually have the same concept in the new covenant law of Christ and it helps you understand how to understand some of the the the, uh, the laws of Christ, so to speak, in the the epistles, particularly the instructions to the new covenant believer. I'll just give you two brief examples. You have a general stipulation in Romans twelve verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a general stipulation. Well, beginning in verse three. Paul gives the so kind of the, the book of the covenant that goes with that, that general stipulation. Here are the specifics. It addresses prideful thoughts, loyalty to the church, the use of your spiritual gifts, how to love one another, exhortations against revenge, all under the general stipulation of present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You have the general stipulation in Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And then, beginning of verse 2, you see how to treat strangers, that you're to remember believers who are in prison. You're to honor the marriage bed. You don't, uh, you're not to love money. You honor leaders in the church. You're not to be led away by strange teaching, which causes division between brothers. You're to share with one another in, in need. You're to obey leaders in the church, all under the general stipulation of let brotherly love continue. Do you see how that helps you interpret your New Testament, especially the epistles? Look for the general stipulation and then the details that you get underneath it. Well, let's do one more theme. The sanctified worship of God. The sanctified worship of God. Israel has been commissioned by God to represent God to the world. They would be completely unique in in really an astounding way. The mythological gods of the Gentile nations all around them, they, they all had something in common. It's that they were mystical and they were never seen except in their little pitiful wood and stone representations. But those gods are never seen. There's a very good reason that those gods are never seen. It's because they don't exist. So nobody ever saw them. But unlike these pagan false gods, Yahweh intended to dwell tangibly and visibly with his people. He would represent his glory with the pillar of cloud in the day, the pillar of fire at night. And this tangible representation of God would allow Israel to follow him. His glory would rest on the tabernacle, the the dedicated worship space commissioned by God. His presence would be literally, you could walk out your tent and see the glory of God reminding you, oh yes, we follow Yahweh, the one true living God, the only God who's ever presented himself visibly to his people. The only one. But because sin separates holy God from unholy mankind, God would provide payment for sin. 
so that his people could fellowship with him, so we could audience with him, so we could worship him. The sacrificial system instituted by God, this was never meant to be forever. It was a temporary atonement pointing ahead, of course, to the full atonement which would be given by Christ himself. And so to accomplish the mediated worship between God and Israel, God appointed one tribe, the Levites, to serve at the tabernacle to continue to teach God's law to the people. And the priesthood served as the the go-betweens. They were the mediators between God and man because we remember from Genesis that once sin entered into the world, the direct relationship that we used to have with God is now a mediated relationship with somebody in between. So what were these sacrifices that were given to God? What was the sacrificial system about? Well, there's a, there's a few good reasons for it. First of all, and most obviously, they provided for atonement for sin, but they're obviously not a sufficient sacrifice because they, they had to be repeated over and over again. The, the pages of the Old Testament are red with the blood of sacrifices that never stopped. And so there's a second reason. Then they were also serving the function of paying tribute in gratitude from the lower vassal nation, the servant nation, to the suzerain, the king, in accordance with what they would understand in the ancient Near East. And so the sacrifices were also tribute. They were also gratitude for saving them. And here's a, here's a classic example. The tenth plague in Egypt... God said that all of the firstborn of the Egyptians would die, but those of the Israelites would be spared if they did what they were instructed to do on the night of the Passover. And so God did spare the firstborn of all the families of Israel, but from that time forward, God said, from now on, I own all your firstborns. They're mine. And what did Israel have to do? Every family had to do this. Mary and Joseph did this for Jesus. They had to go at the birth of their first child, and they had to go offer a sacrifice to redeem that child, to buy him back from God. That is the offering of tribute to God. And then there was a third reason the sacrifices were given. They provided an outlet for the faithful to express himself to the Lord, to express love and trust and thanksgiving, and yes, to express sorrow for sin. We were given that outlet. The sacrifices of the faithful Israelite were offered with sobriety, with humility, with reverence. Because of the faithfulness of Israel to the sacrificial system, this was the doorway to the soul of the, of the individual. This is how you knew what was going on in the soul was the attitude with which he made these sacrifices. And this is exactly why God said in Isaiah 1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He said this to people who were religious but not saved. They weren't offering sacrifices. They were just needlessly murdering animals because there was no heart behind it. And so... Israel's sanctified worship of God, worship which, by the way, was prescribed and orderly and specific. It served as hope to the world that a person can have forgiveness for sin, that there is a means to fellowship with the God who created them. And, of course, this applies directly to us in a principal form. Jesus put it this way to the church, that we're to be light and salt in the world, that who we worship and how we worship makes a difference. 
that we're to show the world what a living relationship with the living God looks like. This is the one major reason, by the way, that Jesus said repeatedly, as we looked at this morning, that anyone who loves him will obey his commands. Because we're to look like the God that we're representing. First John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Well, there's Exodus. I just want to finish with this. Do you see that the five themes are basically a description of the Christian life? Let me show you. The sovereign election of God. We're to properly acknowledge God as the author of our salvation. We are not to take credit. We are not to say, aren't I glad that I was smart enough to come to Christ? The sovereign election of God is our, our starting point. The servant nation of God. We live and exist to serve God. Everything you do is service to God. You can't say, well, there's my secular life and there's my sacred life. That's a false dichotomy. Everything you do is to be sacred to God. It all relates Third theme, the supreme law of God. We're to demonstrate covenant loyalty to God by our obedience to the new covenant law of Christ, just like the Old Testament Jew was to demonstrate love for God by their obedience to the old covenant law of Moses. Same principle, exactly. The fourth theme, the sacred book of the covenant of God. We're to obey the specific stipulations given to us, particularly in the New Testament, meaning you should be reading Romans, you should be reading Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you should be reading the epistles that give you specific instruction. First do this, then do this. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because you love Christ. Husbands, love your wives. That's a general stipulation. Live with them in an understanding manner. That's a specific stipulation. 1 Peter 3. And then the final theme, the sanctified worship of God. We're called to gather to worship based on the sacrifice of Christ and according to God's regulations of Christian worship. We don't just do things the way we want. We do what he says. Okay, next time we'll start unfolding the story of Exodus and it's gonna, we're going to go fast. A few chapters at a time. You might want to read ahead if you haven't already. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this glorious book. I pray, Lord, that these points on the horizon that we've set, that these anchor points would be helpful to these precious ones. I pray, Lord, that the book of Exodus would come alive, not just as a dusty old story, but as something that is as relevant and alive today as when it happened, because it does point us ultimately to Christ, to the Exodus that we received from our sin and into life. And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.